Did all of you enjoy that nine tet by the girls? That was excellent. You realize that those girls were here at 8.15 to sing for the first time. So when you see them, tell them thank you. That was just very well done. It's kind of funny to uh, prepare a message and come to church and then to realize the fact that God has set all these things up, you know? The song that they sang fits what I'm saying. I was thinking the last service, I should have had them sing it at the end of the message also. Can't do it this service because they're leaving. They're out of here, but they've heard me enough times. But this has happened so many times where God just sort of prepares things, you know, and things are ready for the message. At least they should be ready. So I just appreciate that that excellent message by the girls, <clears throat> by the young ladies. Donald Trump spoke recently at the Faith and Freedom Forum Coalition's Road to Majority Conference in Washington, D.C. Did you get a hold of that? That was Friday a week ago. And he attacked and criticized Hillary. At the same time, Hillary has attacked Trump, making statements like he is unsuited for the White House. Do you, do you see what both candidates are talking about? Both candidates are talking about character. They're both saying, you know, this character doesn't have character enough for the White House. It's interesting to me that we have been talking about character at this church from this pulpit for the last, what, four weeks, five weeks. Four weeks ago, Pastor Van uh, began speaking Matthew 15 and the Pharisees and how the Pharisees had so much emphasis on the outside to the neglect of the inside. So they wanted to make sure the disciples washed their hands, weren't worried about the commands of Scripture. They didn't have to take care of their parents and obey Scripture because they could pronounce Corbin on it, you know, and be free to spend their money the way they wanted to. And then uh, two weeks ago, Steve Schreiber, uh, Scheibner, uh, talked about character and character building in the family. Last week, we talked about uh, Proverbs chapter 5 and the walls coming down. This past week, we, Martha and I visited Dwight Eisenhower's home in Gettysburg. <clears throat> and I was encouraged to see the simplicity of a man who was not driven by money or power or popularity. The house was surprisingly simple. The back porch where they spent most of their relaxing hours wasn't any wider than 10 feet, maybe 12 feet at the most. The office where he received visitors from the White House, his office, it's about nine feet by nine feet. Everything that I saw there, almost everything that I saw there said there's something more than accumulating money and living in luxury. 
I thought it said a lot about Eisenhower's character, who the man was, who his wife was. So last week we emphasized character. Solomon made the statement in Proverbs 25, like a city whose walls are broken down is a man who lacks self-control. We, we observed in Proverbs 5 little issues of self-control that become so critical later on. Like the easier choices, the mindless choices, the sensual and attractive choices which bring all kinds of pain into our lives when they unleash their bedlam. Today I'd like to go to the, the epistle that James wrote and look at choices from his point of view. He talks about the stages we go through as we agree to temptation. Stages that cause the self-discipline in our walls to crumble. James 1, in my opinion, is a fabulous chapter that every young believer needs to memorize and learn. <clears throat> and every older believer needs to memorize and learn it if they didn't get it as a young believer. It is an amazing introduction to the Christian life. And James has got three sections there. We do not have time to talk about sections one or three, maybe sometime later, but we want to talk about section two, verses 13 to 20. 13 to 20, the section that talks about how we make these choices. And verse 13 is set right in the middle of this huge contrast. Verse 12, you have blessing and life, the crown of life. And verse 15, you have death. I think both of these verses and everything in between is talking, is referring to people who know the Lord. I think we're talking about believers here. Believers can experience the crown of life, which is not something you put on your head when you get to heaven. Crown of life now, the ultimate of life, the peak of life by obeying what God says in trial and temptation. Verse 15, believers can experience death by going their way, by doing their thing, by taking the easier choice and the mindless choice and the sensual choice. So James is asking the question, how do these, how in the world does temptation get in the door of our lives? Why do we wake up and say, why did I do that? How's the process work? Verse 16 says it's all deception. It's a lie. Let me point out five well-used arguments that repeatedly deceive us and open the door for death. Five ways we talk ourselves into making the easier, the mindless, the sensual choice. Five ways we miss life and choose death. Here they are. Deception number one. God made me this way and I can't help it. Number two, the devil made me do it. Number three, it's not going to kill me. Number four, the devil always seems to make the best offers. Number five, I'm okay. I can handle the temptation, thank you. I don't need your help. Here's number one. God made me this way, and I can't help it. 
Verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. You cannot say this temptation came from God, that God is doing this. How do people do this? Well, they do this by saying, you know, I'm predestined to sin. You know, I got the gene. Uh, you know, it's, it's my environment. If I was in a better place, you know, this is the common homosexual. This is often used as a homosexual argument. I've got the gene. I can't help it. It's used by alcoholics. You know, I've got the alcoholic gene. I'm weak in this area. So we've got all these different ways that we blame God for it, you know. It's the way I'm built. It's my environment. It's my boss. It's my husband. It's my parents. It's my neighbors. It's my children. It's the dog. It's the thermostat. <laughs> Think about that excuse. What does that excuse say? That excuse says, first of all, that if God would put me in a better environment, I'd be better. If I could just get out of this job, if I could just get out of this neighborhood, if I could just get out from under my parents. <laughs> now think about that. Okay, better environment and you'd be better. Okay, let's say you are in a perfect environment. Perfect environment. Would you be perfect? Let's talk to Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, okay? Garden of Eden. How in the world did Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden? What went wrong? Was it their environment? No, what went wrong was inside of them, in spite of their perfect environment. Then contrast that with Jesus Christ. 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted of the devil. Environment didn't help Adam, even though it was perfect. Environment didn't bother Christ, even though it was bad. Everything Adam needed for happiness was in the Garden of Eden. Very little that the Lord needed was in the wilderness. Yet Adam fell the first time he was tempted. Jesus never sinned, even though he was tempted again and again. What happens when you take this argument is you believe in victim theology. Victim theology. Adam and Eve in the first sin created victim theology. It wasn't long after Adam and Eve sinned that God found them hiding and said, Why are you hiding Adam said, we were afraid because we were naked. God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you that you should not eat? That was the question. Have you eaten? How did they answer that? How did Adam answer that? How did Eve eat, answer that? Well, both of them answered by saying, I ate. But they didn't really say that. They didn't really believe that. Here's Adam. Here's Adam's confession of sin. 
The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and yes, I ate. Now, what's he saying? He's saying that he's guilty? Well, yes, but it's really the woman. You know, if it hadn't been for that woman who handed it to me and put it in front of my nose and ate a bite herself in my face and almost stuffed it down my throat, I might not have done it. But yes, I ate. And remember, you gave her to be with me. Perhaps if you had not given her to me and she had not handed it to me, put it in front of my nose, eaten a bite herself, I might be holy. Yes, I ate, but I couldn't help it. Okay, so much for that clear confession of guilt. How about Eve? Here's Eve. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Know what she's saying? She admitting her guilt? Well, yes, but really it's the serpent. You know, if it hadn't been for this snake rising up in front of my eyes, taking over the conversation, talking only about one tree, questioning your words, suggesting you were trying to hold out on us, I might not have eaten. But yes, yeah, I, I ate. But, but. Adam suggested that God had some blame. Eve pointed to Satan. Ever done that? That's deception. Thinking that you can shift the blame off yourself. We point to other people, other circumstances, our environment. And we say to God, what did you expect me to do? Ultimately, those excuses attack God. Martin Luther was correct when he pictured Adam as saying in reality, you, Lord, have sinned. And I think there's nothing perhaps that shows so clearly the horror of sin as this incredible tendency of humans to blame their holy, all-wise, righteous creator for their mess. You, Lord, sinned. You ever blame God? Perhaps for making you too short, too tall, too big a nose, giving you the wrong parents, eyes not good enough, receding hairline. The list is endless. The truth is that we are not victims. God created us back in Genesis to be kings, to be rulers, to take over his creation. God wants us to make choices and do it right. We will never do that till we learn to control ourselves. It starts with our choices. So when you blame God for your job, when you blame God for your neighborhood, when you blame God for your poverty, you're only deceiving yourself. God loves you and wants the very best for you. 
Okay, you say, if God didn't tempt me, it must be you-know-who. The devil made me do it. That was Eve's point of view. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The devil pushed me. The devil tripped me. The devil tricked me. The devil lied to me. Here we excuse our sin by blaming Satan. Okay, maybe not Satan. Maybe it was our brother, our sister. Verse 13 blames God as the source of temptation. Verse 14 says we were pushed. You know, Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. He was pushed. The temptation overwhelmed our ability. What's the answer? The answer is verse 14. Verse 14 says... Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Key words. Own desire. Own desire. Temptation. Own desire. Begins with you. How? This verse gives us two Two steps in stage number one, in the early stages of temptation. Two steps. You've got the word lured and the word enticed. Lured and enticed. The word lured is the word drawn out. It's the word pulled out. From the implication is a safe place. You're in a safe place and you're pulled out. The word enticed is the word baited. It's something nice, beautiful, sweet, minty tasting. Okay? So we are pulled out. We are baited. That's where temptation begins. So we're drawn away. You'll notice this is all connected with your desires. We're drawn away of our desires. Where does sin begin? It begins with my desires. Our desires. What kind of desires? Well, first of all, notice that these desires are not bad desires. Why? Because you don't have sin in verse 14. You have sin in verse 15. When desire conceives, it gives birth to sin. So you don't have sin here. You have desires. So if you have the NIV, the New International Version, you'll notice the word evil desires. You can cross off the word evil. It should not be there. Each of us is lured and enticed by our desires. The point is that each one of us has a set of desires. We're created with those. They keep us functioning as human, human beings. We need to eat. We need to sleep. We need to exercise. We need love. We need to be loved. We need to learn. We need to accomplish something useful. We have these desires, and these desires are the place where temptation begins. If you went to Psychology 101, you probably heard about Abraham Maslow, who back in the 30s and 40s came up with a list of desires and needs for every human, and he set them in a hierarchy. So he talked about basic physiological needs like food and water and warmth and rest, and then he talked about safety needs like security, protection, and alarm system. Then he talked about belongingness and love needs. We need friends. We need relationships. Then he talked about esteem needs. We need to feel like we're doing something, accomplishing something. 
Talked about self-actualization needs. I don't know if he's right. I don't really, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I just find that this is an interesting list that says everybody has these needs. Maslow built it as a pyramid and said, you really don't go up a notch until you get some of these lower ones filled. So if you're hungry and you're starving, you're not worried about safety. You're not worried about feeling of accomplishment. You want food. I thought that was interesting. But the point is, that's where temptation begins. So you are in a safe place. You cannot be tempted except that your need pulls you out. You get hungry about quarter 12, you know, and you've got this thing inside that sends a message to your brain. Your antennae go out, you know, and you're, you're looking. It's at that point, after you get pulled out, that you can be tempted. Satan comes along, your neighbor comes along, something's on TV, you know, something says, wouldn't you really rather eat this or this amount or with this person and so on. So all of these needs can be, when they pull us out, they make us so that we can be tempted. We can be enticed because of our needs. If you don't have needs, if the needs do not pull you out, you can't be tempted. Illustration? Here's my illustration. It's Thanksgiving. You've just had an all-turkey dinner with all the trimmings, mashed potatoes, gravy, you know, cranberry, whatever, and stuffing, and so on. You are overly filled, and you are sitting there on the couch watching the Washington Redskins defeat the Dallas Cowboys. <laughs> and you are, you are completely satisfied. Amen? Praise the Lord. Yes. Somebody comes in and says with great expectation, you know, with real excitement, says, do you know that McDonald's is offering two Big Macs for $5? Let's go get two apiece. Are you tempted? Absolutely not. You can't be tempted. The temptation comes when the need draws you out. That's the way Jesus Christ could be tempted. How can God be tempted? God can't be tempted. We just saw that in verse 13. How can God be tempted? God can't be tempted except for the fact that God got hungry. And Satan came along and said, turn this rock into bread. Think about a sandwich. You know, how about a ham sand? No, not a ham. How about a... How about, how about a, a turkey salmon? Think about tomatoes. Think about lettuce, you know? Think about mayonnaise. Think about dill pickles, you know? What's he doing? He's working on Christ's need. It's brutal. Christ hasn't had a thing to eat for 40 days. That's the way he works. So... Temptation in verse 14, temptation begins with our desires that pull us out and then, and then the enticement comes. 
maybe from Satan, maybe from somewhere else. You know, the enticement comes. Up to that point, you don't have sin. There's nothing wrong. Jesus Christ experienced, verse 14, in many different ways. He was tempted in all points like as we are. His, his needs pulled him out. He was enticed. He was baited. Never yielded. So we're enticed to fulfill our desire the wrong way. Then verse 15 and 16 say, here's deception number three. It's not going to hurt me. I can do this. You know, this is nothing big. This, this is a white lie. Nothing big here. I can do this. Verse 15 says, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Don't err. Don't let anybody lead you astray on this. When it is full grown, it brings forth death. So you'll notice in verse 15, That sin is born when we grab the bait. Sin is born when we grab the bait. Desire when it has conceived. The word conceived means to grab. To get a hold of. To make it your own. When you agree with that bait and say, I want it. I'm going to get it. You reach for it. Then all of a sudden, you have created something. You have created something that up to then is not there. Sin. Sin comes because you grab the bait. I grab the bait. So the real source of sin is not Satan. The real source of sin is giving in to your own personal desires to fulfill them Satan's way. Here's Romans chapter 5 verse 12. Through one man, sin entered the world. Notice it doesn't say, through Satan, sin entered the world. Who created sin? Adam. So you agree, you yield, you go get it, and you create something that is not there. Sin. Sin begins when Satan finds somebody willing to take his solution to their desires and feelings. The process is pure deception. Satan is master, the father of lies. His pitch to Eve was, God is overstating the case. It's not going to kill you. In fact, you're going to enjoy it because your eyes will be open and you will become like God. The cleverness of Satan's lie is that he can pitch death as something we need. A fulfillment of our hopes as something light and refreshing. The embezzler says to him that he's just borrowing the money. He will surely pay it back. The unfaithful husband assures himself that what his wife doesn't know won't hurt her. Or the government worker says, everybody's doing it. Why shouldn't I? As he pads his expense account or steals things from his office. Satan succeeded with Adam and Eve by lying about the effect of their action. He pictured eating the apple as becoming like God. 
Nothing about the fact that it would ruin billions of their children. Nothing about the fact that it was opening the door for their firstborn son to become a murderer of his brother and a wandering vagabond for the rest of his life. You'll become like God. He pictured the act that led to death as a Bible college education. What a liar. And then it says in verse 15 that when sin is full term, it brings forth another birth. So you grab the bait and you create sin. And then sin, when it is full term, it brings forth another birth. The pictures of maternity ward after nine months of pregnancy. The conception took place when you seized the bait. Now, after a period of time, that which started as disobedience has incubated and come full term. And you bring forth a birth. And what is that birth? You bring forth a birth. Death. And then James says, do not be deceived. James is talking about when sin comes full, full term, when it becomes a fixed habit. So it controls you rather than you controlling it. And the result is not a whole lot different than the woman who carries a child for nine months. And then after 20 hours of labor, has a delivery and discovers her child is dead. Here's the horrible truth. We execute ourselves. What do you mean death, you say? Death? Death? You mean I lose my salvation and go to hell? You mean I die physically, immediately? No, it's a death similar to Adam and Eve's. How did Adam and Eve die? God said, the moment you eat, you're going to die. Well, they didn't die physically. But the moment they ate, something changed. They realized they were naked. And they hid from God. Have you ever noticed that working in your life? You say, I'm going to go Satan's way. I'm going to go do this. And all of a sudden, you don't want God in your life. You don't want God's word in your life. You don't want to pray. You don't want to be around Christians. You want to hide. That's death. That's death at work. The word death means separated. Sin separates you from God. Sin separates you from others. Sin separates you. And as this process goes on, it separates you emotionally. And it separates you relationally. And it separates you psychologically and so on. And there are many different ways you will be separated before final death. So what do you mean it's not going to hurt you? It'll kill you. It'll injure people around you who you love. What do you mean, white lie? It's opening the door for the smiling terrorist to enter with his bulging trench coat. It's offering him a room in your house right next to the master bedroom 
with no thought about anything other than good because he's smiling and kind and fun to have around. Think of the tragedy this past year. Think of the tragedy. Here's an American icon. An amazing guy when it has come, when it comes to acting and all that he has done. And yet, no self-control, no walls in his life. He apparently thought he could do with women whatever he wanted to do. What a complete tragedy. At the same time, deception number four says, Satan always seems to make the best offer. Satan always has the most beautiful girls, the most handsome hulks. He always seemed to be able to get the real party going. God simply seems to be sitting there saying, no, no, no. What does God have to offer? You know, Satan has the best offer. Doesn't look like God's interested in us having life. Here's the real truth. The real truth is that God wants the best for us. Verse 17 and 18 say, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. The truth is that Satan has nothing to offer. Everything good is from above. Everything good is from above. Satan is a zero. He's bankrupt. He isn't even interested in giving. Never has been. All he wants to do is distort God's good gifts. What did God, what did Satan give to Eve? Think about Eve. The tree was God's. The apple was God's. The garden was God's. The plan to make Adam and Eve ruler over creation was God's. What did Satan give her? Did he give her fun? Joy? Peace? Did he give her more apples? Nothing. Satan had zero. She ate an apple. She found out later that she had not only ruined her relationship with God, but that of all her children. Didn't he supply something? No, that's not his nature. Jesus says, the thief comes not, but to steal and kill and destroy. Do you see the word only in there? The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That describes his nature. He will do nothing else. Steal, kill, and destroy. Contrast to that, the amazing father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God is called the father of lights. Meaning his goodness is like the sun 
which cannot be put out. Nothing can stop the radiance of his goodness. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. You are not too far from God's grace because he's the father of lights. God is the source of every good and perfect gift. Do you notice that after Adam and Eve sinned, Satan disappeared? He wasn't walking with them in the cool of the evening. Was he concerned about them? He couldn't care less. All he can do is twist God's word in a way that allows him to pose as if he's giving something better. The stupidity of the whole process is incredible. And yet you hear talk today around us. You hear talk as if Satan is actually making a credible offer. You know, Satan's got something to offer. You hear statements like, why is everything that is fun either illegal, immoral, or fattening? (laughs) You know? As if Satan can offer something fun. Like smoking is fun. Pornography is fun. Alcohol is fun. Exploding and telling everybody off in anger is fun. All night, wide open party time is fun. And God, the one who always says no, no, and is trying to keep us from the fun. The truth of the matter is that smoking is not fun. It simply signs you up for the lung cancer ward. And pornography is tragic. It destroys marriages and relationships and true love. And alcohol is deadly. And all night wide open parties can leave you with a brutal hangover, a fresh case of herpes, STDs, perhaps even AIDS. Fun? You have to get you have to be a master liar to get people to buy this garbage. You are asking people to do what is completely stupid. The truth of the matter is God wants you to be blessed. That's where verse 12 was going. He wants you to experience the crown of life, to enjoy his kind of life, the kind you can look back 10 years later and say, wow, that was great. Let's do it again. The point is that God has given us all, all that belongs to life, life with all the condiments. God's purpose in this world is life and fruit. Life and fruit. It says he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He brought us forth. Do you know the word brought us forth is exactly the same word as verse 15. Verse 15 says... Sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Here, this verse, God, by his word, brought us forth to life. God's goal is life. Satan's goal is death. And he wants us to be first fruits. You know what first fruits are? First fruits are the fruits that say they're going to be second fruits. And they're going to be third fruits and they're going to be fourth fruits. You know, once you have first fruits, you got something that's producing. 
Uh, that reminds me. Time out here. Uh, those of you that received a tomato plant for me, both of you, I think I gave away a hundred and some. Okay. I'm expecting the first fruits. <laughs> I'm kidding. God's goal is to make us first fruits, meaning others follow because of us, because they see the amazing glory of God in our lives. So don't let anyone convince you that Satan is fun, that Satan has fun, that Satan has something to offer. I met a woman once who was a fortune teller. She said she could actually tell the future because she was possessed. Her grandmother, she'd gone into her grandmother's room as her grandmother was dying. She was a young girl. Her grandmother wanted to give us, give her a gift. She said she was confident she was demon possessed and she could tell the future. And when she came to Christ, she lost her power. She said what happened when she came to Christ was that the Holy Spirit came into her life and the demon had to leave. But she made this statement. She said she never made a prophecy that was good. Said all of her prophecies, which came true, were accidents, sickness, difficulty, danger, you know, all of this stuff that is bad. And she said she thought that what was going on was that Satan could predict those kind of things because he can do them. But he couldn't predict anything good because he had no power there or interest. So don't let anyone tell you that Satan's got something good going on. And then the last thing, number, number five. I can handle the temptation. Thank you. One of the large problems of our lives when the walls are coming down, one of the large problems is to get us to admit it. One of the ironic things about sin is the confidence it gives us that we can handle it. You ever notice that? It takes over our lives with this built-in assurance that we can stop at any time. It's a self-confident assurance in the middle of repeated failure. Verses 19 and 20 say... Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Since every good and perfect gift is from above, and God's purposes on earth are only good, and he intends us to become a kind of first fruits, we desperately need more information and more help. We need God's word poured into our lives. We need God's strength and God's help. And so James is saying, you want to be quick to hear because faith comes by listening to God's word. You need God's word inputted constantly into your life. That's why you're here, I hope. You're here to listen to God's word because we need God's word. Wednesday night, I encourage the people Wednesday night not to waste the summer. <clears throat> How do you not waste the summer? 
Well, take a project. My project for them was memorize Second Peter. Second Peter. It's only 61 verses. One verse per day, you'll have it memorized by August. Memorize Second Peter. So I handed out these sheets of paper that have Second Peter on them. Here is Second Peter, all 61 verses, front and back. So you take this sheet of paper. I've got it in five translations. King James, New King James, NIV, NASB, and ESV. Okay? You take this sheet of paper, you fold it in half, and then you fold it in half again, and then you fold it in half again. And you have this little pocket-sized thing you can carry in your pocket or in your purse, and you can memorize from it. And you can turn it and so on as you go through. I would challenge you to memorize Second Peter. I've got copies of this out on the information table. If you'd like to steal one, borrow one, take one with you, they're free. How many of you will do this? Good, I see six hands. And I realize I haven't given you any time to think about it. But we need God's Word in our hearts. We're only going to get it in by listening. You've got to read it. You've got to think about it. You've got to listen to it. So he's saying, James is saying, we've got to listen. We've got to be slow to speak. Why? Because we lie to ourselves. We use these excuses, these rationalizations. Be slow to think about what you're saying. Not just to others, to yourself. And we need to be slow to anger. Control your anger. Your anger is not going to make you conquer temptation. What you need is this book. I want you to notice in closing how Jesus Christ dealt with temptation. Satan came and said, let's have sandwiches. What did Jesus say? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Satan came and said, hey, jump. Let me quote a verse. How did Jesus respond? Quoted another verse. You will notice that when Jesus was tempted, he did not pull down some new nuclear power from heaven and zap Satan. You'll notice he did not use his omnipotent power. What he used was something that was written by a man that was written by a man 1,500 years before he used it. And what he used totally wiped out Satan's ability to tempt him. Satan left. Now think about the fact that for 1,500 years, the nation of Israel, the people in the nation of Israel had those words. They had those words in their hands. Meaning any person in the nation of Israel for 1,500 years could have done exactly the same thing that Jesus Christ demonstrated. How many of them did that? How many of them quoted a verse and shut Satan's temptation off? 
My guess is that most of the people ignored it. And Satan came and just bashed in their moral brains with his temptation. Even though they had all the power they needed. You ever thought about the fact that you have in your hands an incredibly powerful book? A sword so effective that you, yes, you, you can defeat the most powerful enemy, the greatest liar in the universe. But you have to get a hold of it. Are your walls standing or are your walls falling? With the possibility of the greatest life anyone could ever have in your grasp through this book, with the possibility of the blessing of God, why would you want to miss it? By listening to the greatest liar the world has ever known. So here we are, here are the here are the five. Here's the deception. Don't think that God has anything to do with your temptation. He does not do that. Don't think that the devil made you do it. You made the choice to listen and obey one of your own desires. Don't think that it's not going to hurt you. It will kill you faster than you think. Don't think that Satan has anything good to offer. He is a zero and comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And don't think you can do it by yourself. You need, we need God's word. We win by listening, not talking or expressing anger.